This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. So like me, you might not spend a lot of time thinking about where our power comes from. You flip a switch, the light comes on, and then you go on with your day. But there's a lot going on behind the scenes, and it's worth thinking about because the traditional way that we get our energy is warming our planet. But it doesn't have to be that way. The Illinois Institute of Technology, IIT, which is a cultural anchor here in Bronzeville, has been experimenting with a futuristic way to make its own electricity that doesn't require burning fossil fuels. So here to tell us more is Mohammed Shahidapur, professor of electrical and computer engineering at the school, also known as Illinois Tech, where he's director of the Robert W. Galvin Center for Electricity Innovation. Welcome, professor. Thank you very much. Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert is still with us as well. Professor, what does your microgrid do? Help us understand. Well, um, it does two things, two major things. One is that in a normal day like today, it allows us to utilize our own resources on campus, uh, whether it's the solar panels, batteries, wind units, uh, uh, and basically utilize resources that, first of all, clean the environment or cr create less pollution, and also help us save money because uh, practically you do not spend any money when you generate energy using solar panels. You still have to pay for them, yeah. but, but there is no fuel involved. So can it power something as large as, say, the whole campus? Yes, yes. We have, we have about uh, 52 buildings on campus, and the microgrid that we have encompasses the entire campus. Now, I was going to point out that uh, the second thing that the microgrid does is that in case of emergency, if there is a regional outage in an area, we are able to island the entire campus, basically separate it from the utility operation, and then keep the lights on. So uh, over the last uh, 12 years that we've had this system in operation, we have had a number of outages on campus, but we never had any downtime, meaning that we have always been able to keep the lights on. Yeah. We have people living on campus, and that's very important for us. What excites you about this, Karen? So this is a, a very cool example of uh, next generation technology that we, we actually see in lots of places, uh, but just not tons of them. So you see it on hospitals, you might see it on a military base. Here we've got it at a university. And uh, what's really interesting about it is, first of all, it's in Chicago. Uh, but also this idea of infrastructure that can provide multiple benefits. So it's clean power generation, depending on how you fuel your microgrid. And IIT's obviously looked at that in particular. But then this idea of of independence and this idea that it's providing resilience. And so as we see more storms and we see more threats to electricity coming into your home or building, if you're in a microgrid, you can actually just take yourself off the grid and have the power that you're producing locally and hopefully clean. Yeah. Well, how does it work, Professor? We're, we're dying to know. Well, uh, the way it works is that every day we plan for tomorrow. We look, uh, do the forecast for the solar, for wind, price of electricity, what the load is going to look like on campus on an hourly basis, and then we plan. We figure out how much we need to charge our batteries, when do we use the solar, how much we need to import from the grid, mm -hmm. whether or not we need to turn on the large generator that we have on campus, and uh, based on that, we save the university quite a bit annually. Running it as a microgrid. Yeah, we're all familiar with Chicago's brutal winters, right? I feel mm -hmm. like one is starting right now. Mm -hmm. um, and it can take a lot of energy to, to actually keep a home warm. So does snowfall affect how much energy solar panels can absorb? Well, actually, you generate energy even when there is snow because okay. you use the solar radiation. Of course, it's, it has some impact. I mean, it reduces because of the cloud 
uh, yet you still generate energy. But the most important issue for us is to generate a lot of energy during the summertime, because that's when we have the peak load, a lot of air conditioning devices and all that. And this system really helps us. You know, we also use uh, IIT's uh, microgrid as a sort of a uh, system that we can demonstrate to others how the microgrid works. Yeah. So we host a lot of visits from, you know, government, uh, industry, other universities, uh, as Karen pointed out, people from military, right. to demonstrate how the microgrid works. Yeah, and I, I think most people are familiar with how generators work, right, and how they kick in when the power goes out. So we're clear, is a microgrid basically a generator? Microgrid is, in a technical term, is a controllable load. Basically, what it does is that we are connected to the utility system. We have our own resources. We figure out how much load we have on a daily basis and how much of that we can generate ourselves. So it's very important to manage the system in a very optimal fashion, and that's what the microgrid allows us to do. Yeah, and who's maintaining it? Well, we have a whole crew on campus, the ground people who maintain that. But one thing that's important to point out is that much of the funding for building this microgrid was provided by the U.S. Department of Energy. We also uh, acquired some funding from the state and from the city, but much of the funding came from the U.S. Department of Energy. So they've been very supportive of building microgrids in the United States. Karen, can you tell us more about the, um, the harms of the traditional power grid for the environment and also our health? So the traditional grid is its kind of in three stages. First, there's power generation, and that's where it might be burning coal or increasingly now natural gas. So that's kind of where you make the power. And then there are these long lines, transmission. That brings the power to where you need it. That's the load part. And then at the end, there's distribution. And that's where the power actually comes into you know, this room or, or your home or your electricity. And so a lot of the challenges are actually how you're producing that power. It's that burning of the fossil fuels that is still a significant source. That's a major challenge. And embedded in that system is that long transmission part. Yeah. We actually lose a lot of the power in that movement. And so you lose efficiency in that way. Uh, so some of those challenges are you know, the burning. It relates back to our earlier conversation on air quality. Uh, and then it's inefficient because it has to travel so far. And, and so this is a different way of doing it. It's trying to co-locate the power you need with the place where you need it. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. And if you're just tuning in, we're talking about where we get our power and how the IIT campus can generate their own power. That is thanks to a solar panel-powered microgrid. And our guests are Mohammed Shahidapur, Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Illinois Tech, and Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert. So I mentioned earlier, Professor, that microgrids can talk to each other. What? <laughs> yes, because uh, there is a microgrid at the Illinois Tech here in Brownsville, and also there is a microgrid that's owned by ComEd located here in Brownsville. And then we have uh, established a system that allows the two microgrids to actually exchange energy. That's how they talk to each other. Wow. And uh, that comes very handy in case, again, if there is a major outage in the area, the two systems can support each other. Because as you know, there are some uh, very critical loads in Brownsville, namely the Chicago uh, police station, the central station. And it is very important to make sure that those entities will always remain energized. So by allowing the two microgrids to communicate with each other in case Brownsville does not have enough energy available, mm -hmm. in case of an emergency, IIT would be able to support them in order to make sure that the lights will stay on here. So explain that um, replenishing process after one microgrid takes from another. Is it instantaneous or 
Instantaneous. Does it take time? Instantaneous. There's actually a dedicated cable that connects the two systems. So we basically do not rely on the Chicago grid okay. to make the two systems to communicate with each other. And then using the dedicated cable, the power can flow from one system to the next. I see. So, so it's clear uh, a microgrid can increase self-sufficiency creating energy. Why is it important to be self-sufficient in this sense? Well, the self-sufficient in the sense that, that uh, we try to sort of lower the cost of uh, supplying energy. We need to clean the environment. And of course, building a sort of a citywide uh, solar system, a distributed system, gets to be an impossible task. Whereas yeah. if you have these clusters, like what's available in Brunsville, what's available at, at the university, allows you to do that and control it locally in order to make sure that you satisfy whatever the mandate you have. In our case at the IIT, uh, our mandate is reliability, to make sure that the lights will stay on uh, if there is an outage uh, because we have people living in the dormitories. In the case of a police station, the mandate could be something else. In the case of a military installation, it could be another option. So microgrid allows you to satisfy those specific mandates, whether you're in a city state or an emergency. So Karen, how does this play into sustainability efforts at the neighborhood level? So in this case, when you're thinking about the neighborhood level, you've got two sides of this. One is, where's the power come from? And so at the neighborhood level, you might actually be able to have those local solar panels. So that creates the opportunity to, first of all, learn about them, second of all, see them. And maybe you actually had an opportunity to actually help install them. So it can be very physical, small parts that are in a neighborhood. It's also benefiting, then, the resilience of the neighborhood. So this, this microgrid controller combination of IET and Bronzeville is incredibly unique nationally. Yeah. And the side that is now supporting the Bronzeville neighborhood, it's over 1,000 local buildings. So that's it's such a very large neighborhood in a sense. Yeah. But they are now resilient to any outage in the broader power grid. So you have those local pieces of sustainability combined with the resilience as we're seeing changes in weather. Uh, this Bronzeville, the part of the Bronzeville neighborhood that's covered, will experience some of those power outages much differently. I think, Professor, that some listeners might write this off because it seems expensive and it seems inaccessible. So tell us the cost of installation here and, well, and the other costs over time. I pointed out that one of the major advantages of having a microgrid is in case of an emergency. Right. Now, in the case of an emergency, like you know, hurricanes in, in uh, Puerto Rico, in uh, you know, fire in California, earthquake. I don't know whether you can really put a price on the life of a human being. If you can build a microgrid that can save lives, and it does, then, then uh, no matter what the price is, we should be able to pay that. Now, one thing that's very important is that, for instance, the price of the solar is dropping very fast. The price of the battery is dropping very fast. So that as the usage grows, the prices will stabilize to the extent that we can do a lot more of that. It's very similar to like any other product. You know, when the cell phones came around, at the beginning the prices were very high. When people started buying them, the prices dropped. We expect that the same thing is going to happen to mm -hmm. the microgrid and these distributed systems as we prolong. Yeah. Well, you know, Professor talks about people and human lives. We reached this week, Karen, a milestone. There are now 8 billion people on this planet. So remind us, how can solar power just help to reduce the strain here on the climate? Yeah, that was a big number. Huge and, number. Uh, I think it's only 12 years since we hit 7 billion. So the trajectory is obviously incredibly large in terms yeah. of population growth. It is, it is slowing. So we're not going to see the next billion quite that quickly. 
Um, but as you're seeing that population growth, a lot of the population growth is happening in places where it's already hot globally. And uh, so as we think about solar, right now it's growing very, very rapidly. As, as Professor Shahida Poor mentioned, prices are going down globally. Mm -hmm. And so there's a really wonderful opportunity in many cases to match uh, population growth in places that are hot with solar panels, which capture energy and provide it when you need air conditioning. Yeah. So there are some long-term opportunities here, but globally, um, solar's been growing very, very rapidly, uh, and it'll continue to play a role that we're seeing the trends. Well, for the past two weeks, world leaders have actually been convening, COP27 in Egypt, and power generation is a major player in conversations about reducing emissions. We know that, but tell us a bit about the discussions that have been happening there and, and have there been any major updates or, or decisions that they've reached? Because I, I think we're nearing the end. We are definitely in the second week of the two-week global events. You've got leaders from about 200 countries, diplomats and others, engaged. And uh, there have been some announcements. One that I've really been interested in has been the three largest rainforest nations in the world. So Brazil, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Indonesia mm -hmm. are now creating a collaboration to support and strengthen that incredible global ecosystem. So that's one thing that I've seen that's been really positive to look at. Uh, on the other side, the negotiations seem to be going slowly, and they're behind where we would want. So at this oh. stage, we would like to know a little bit more about what the, the cover document's going to be, what the consensus is going to be coming out of this. Um, but they've run late before, so uh, <laughs> I, I expect we'll have some late-breaking news. But it's absolutely emissions, and there's an incredible amount of conversation that relates to the loss and damage question. So how are the countries that are more, most vulnerable and contributed the least to climate change going to be supported financially as they're dealing with the challenges even today? Reset Sustainability contributor Karen Weigert and Professor Mohammed Shahidapur, Director of the Robert W. Galvin Center for Electricity Innovation at IIT. Thank you both.